Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. In this episode, we're going back to January and episode 13 of the podcast to revisit the themes we felt would have the biggest impact on your investments in 2023. We're going to explore the events that weren't predicted as well. It's been a turbulent six months to say the least, and with me to pick through it all in the studio this week is City Stalwart and Interact Investors Head of Markets, Richard Hunter. One of the first things we discussed back in January was the potential recession that was going to happen both here in the UK and also across the pond in the US. It seemed a bit of a nailed-on certainty that there was going to be a recession in the UK, but that's not happened yet. And I think it was a bit 50-50 about whether it would happen in the US. So why has the recession not happened yet and what's the likelihood of a recession happening for both the UK and the US either later this year or early on in 2024? Yeah, it's a difficult comparison. U- UK and the US um, have similar themes, but they're certainly not the same, quite apart from the size of the economy. Um, if you look in the UK, I think it's fair to say that it's been a lot more resilient than people had expected. Uh, the consumer hasn't um, yet totally retrench. And of course, there's always uh, an element of the uh, rising interest rates not applying to everyone. People have paid off mortgages. People are on generally longer fixed terms, for example, uh, and so on. That being said, one thing the UK doesn't have, which the US has, is uh, strong growth. And strong GDP growth has very much been a feature of the States and notable by its absence in the UK. The other problem, of course, as we discussed at the turn of the year, and as is still the case, the rising of uh, interest rates is a very blunt tool. Um, And bearing in mind most of the economic data that comes through is anywhere between a month and three months old, it's difficult for central banks to to guess at any given time just how much of an impact those interest rate rises have had. So I think the general uh, consensus at the moment is that we're still... Um, likely to have hopefully a mild recession in the UK. Uh, We've been teetering on the edge now for some months, probably towards the end of the year or possibly going into early 24. And similarly, the Federal Reserve in the States is trying to engineer what what they call a soft landing. Um, But again, it'll only be with the benefit of hindsight that we'll see how their aggressive interest rate policies have have actually taken hold. Um, So I think the best that you can hope for there probably um, is is a similar situation of a mild recession early next year. Certainly those in the States who were clamouring and predicting interest rate cuts uh, from the Fed by the end of the year have finally listened to the Fed rhetoric Uh, that higher rates are here for longer than previously expected until such time as inflation can be tamed. And bringing this back to the investment implications for DIY investors' portfolios. So if we do have a mild recession here in the UK, you know, it's important to not panic sell, you know, think long term, have a diversified portfolio, all those usual golden rules still apply. And also bear in mind that not all stocks are the same. Some will go up and down, you know, in different economic conditions. So, you know, the general rule of thumb is that, you know, the cyclical stocks, such as retailers, they'll in theory suffer in a recessionary environment if, if you know, the consumer tightens his or her belt. Um, and then the opposite of cyclical firms are defensive companies. So these are, you know, companies that provide goods and services that the consumer views as being very essential and they're not going to want to give them up even if they have to tighten their belts. 
And there's a, a couple of fund examples that I think will p- potentially hold up well in a recession are the likes of Fundsmith Equity, Rathbone Global Opportunities, and Trojan Global Equity. And then we've mentioned on this podcast before that, you know, for defensive exposure, big fans of the Wealth Preservation Investment Trust, the likes of Capital Gearing, Ruffer Investment Company, and Personal Assets. And with those Wealth Preservation Trusts, an interesting trend, Richard, at the moment is that um, they're all favouring index-linked bonds, mainly index-linked bonds issued by the US government, but there's also, they also have some exposure to the UK index-linked bonds as well. And the reason why these fund managers have been buying these bonds is because they think inflation has become embedded. And, you know, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I've seen the point made, made that, you know, inflation's being stoked by, you know, pay rises, wages going up, and also the slowdown in globalization. So, Richard, what are your thoughts? I mean, you've mentioned, obviously, interest rate rises. You know, it looks like we're in an environment where they're going to be higher for longer. Um, so what's your outlook for both rates and also inflation? Interesting you should mention uh, wage rises. That's some, something which is clearly more of a thing in the UK at the moment. In the US, they've been a, a lot more conservative. Obviously, in the UK, we know uh, that we're averaging somewhere between 6 and 7% in terms of pay rises at the moment. Admittedly, not enough to keep up with inflation. But that's that's the kind of thing which could come back to bite companies in the future. And there are other interesting differences between the cultures, for want of a better word, uh, between us and the other side of the pond. If, if it, we look at the UK, for example, the average uh, mortgage term is somewhere between two and five years. That makes sense. People flip it over every two or five years, depending on the, the background interest rate environment. In the States, the mortgage average length is 30 years. So there's a big swathe of people in the States who are, in terms of the mortgage anyway, totally unaffected by interest rate rises. And obviously, we're seeing a lot in the UK about the expiration of some of these two and five-year deals, uh, which are going to hit certain people hard. It's also interesting that there's been a lot of media speculation about the fact, well, you know, it was worse in the 1990s. Interest rates hit 15% overnight in 1992 because of the exchange rate mechanism. Well, that is a fair point, except, of course, that in 1992, house prices were a lot lower. Um, and so the, the current jump from, from let's say, 2 to 6% is on a, on a higher base in terms of the value of the property and, therefore, the mortgage. So there, there is still an element of pain there. But you're absolutely right, of course. By the same token, regardless of the economic backdrop, you've got defensive uh, shares which have pricing power. There's a number of um, big branded, multi-branded stocks, even in in the FTSE 100, who for various reasons quite simply have the ability to continue to drive their growth by passing on uh, inflationary prices, which people will will continue to pay. That will range from the likes of Unilever and Reckitt Benkiser through to the drinks giant Diageo, for example. Obviously, you know, we'll have a better sense in six months' time, really, about whether interest rate rises have achieved the aim of taming um, inflation. I mean, when I speak to fund managers, there, there does seem to be a general consensus that, you know, that inflation, it will fall. Most people I speak to seem to indicate that by the end of the year, it might be down to 4% to 5%. And the reason why is because as inflation is measured year over year, you know, a year ago, there was some very high monthly increases, mainly driven by the rising cost of energy following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So those figures are unlikely to be repeated 
in the months to come. So um, it's it's a mechanical thing, really, that inflation should potentially halve, which is obviously the ambition of uh, the Prime Minister. You're absolutely right. And there is never any harm in us reminding ourselves that inflation at 5%, of course, is better than inflation at 10%. However, it doesn't mean that prices are going down. It means that prices are rising less quickly. So 5% inflation is painful enough, and it's obviously starting from a higher base than we had last year. So of course, it's a step in the right direction, but 5% inflation remains toppy. And one of the reasons that both central banks, the Fed and the Bank of England, have targets rather nearer to. And it looks unlikely that those targets are going to be achieved anytime soon, really. And then that obviously underpins that interest rates are likely to remain higher for longer. Absolutely. And uh, this can become a a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, when when that inflation, as you mentioned earlier, or should that inflation become embedded. There was a lot of fund managers talking up a potential recovery for mid and small cap firms, given that they had such a tough 2022. This, however, has not happened in the first six months of 2023. Since the start of the year, the average UK smaller company fund, it's down 3.1%, which isn't too bad really compared to um, how such funds performed last year. But it does show that, you know, a recovery has clearly not taken place yet. And I suppose the same sort of fears and concerns that investors had about, you know, putting more capital into this part of the market, which potentially offers high rewards over the long term, but you're taking on a higher degree of risk, is the fact that, you know, yes, the economy, it's doing better than than people expected, but it's still fairly stagnant. Inflation's high. Interest rates are going up. And given that backdrop, um, you know, people have become more cautious and, you know, the higher sort of risk areas like smaller companies, they're not going to be the first thing that people invest in. No, I think you're right. And um, as you said, the small cap index is down about 3% year to date. The FTSE 250, which is very roughly seen as some kind of barometer of the UK economy, has given up any gains from earlier in the year. That's down about 5% year to date. And of course, lest we forget, even the Premier Index, the FTSE 100, was hitting record highs in February of over 8,000 and has has since significantly come back there. So the UK on on a number of fronts in terms of an international investor perspective, let alone domestic investors, has been suffering uh, from that potential diminution of of risk appetite, which we've clearly seen as the last few months have unfolded unfolded and also the recent rather surprise Bank of England interest rate of half a percent rather than a quarter percent has also very much put the um, idea of higher for longer back on the table. Another area that we talked about as a potential uh, rebound in 2023 was the uh, the FANG stocks, so the famous US technology companies. Way back in January, Richard, you said that the FANG stocks, they're here to stay, they've built their economic moats, and you said that you do, did suspect that there would be some bargain hunting going on after 2022 share price falls. And those share price falls, they were in response to those interest rate rises, which has the effect of making the future earnings potential of those companies less valuable. So Richard, well, well done, that's played out. But the, the biggest driver behind those companies um, bouncing back we didn't mention at all, which is, of course, um, artificial intelligence, AI. Yeah, that's certainly been there in, in more recent months. The the tech stocks had had a pretty good year up until then anyway. There's still an element of putting this into perspective. The Nasdaq was down about 30 
3% last year. In the year to date this year, it's up about 29%. The S&P 500, which has a big exposure to technology, that's up about 13%. But even if we called the technology turnaround, um, there is a bigger question mark for some bears in the US market. A lot of that strength in technology has been driven by about seven stocks the mega caps. So it hasn't been a broad-based recovery, and that's an area of concern. In terms of AI, NVIDIA is the obvious one, uh, which has had a, a near 200% rise over the last year. But obviously, there are other within the mega caps, the Googles, the Microsoft, etc., who we, we can expect to have an increasing presence in that area. What I would say, just from an investment perspective, is that we're, we're currently going through the stage of trying to monetize and anticipate what AI could mean uh, for those technology stocks. So a, an element of those um, valuations will be frothy. In terms of investors who, who think, I'd like some exposure to AI, there's two things to, to consider. Number one, it's possible you already do if you own uh, a technology ETF. Uh, or any any kind of technology fund. And number two, think about technology ETFs or any kind of technology fund in terms of spreading your risk rather than having all your eggs in a, an NVIDIA basket. But um, yeah, the AI developments have certainly been a, a, a more recent thing, but the tech, tech on the whole, uh, because of those economic moats, have strangely become seen as something of a defensive play over the uh, kind of volatility we've seen so far in 2023. So as well as NVIDIA, which manufactures the computer chips that lead and AI systems are developed and implemented on, those other six US technology companies that have, been, have driven the vast majority of the 13% gains of the S&P 500 this year are Microsoft, Alphabet, Meta, which is Facebook, Apple, Amazon, and Tesla. And yeah, I completely agree, Richard. I think, you know, when you have these big themes and you see these stocks sort of bid up over a very short time period, there's always the danger that investors buy in too late or at a peak just before um, those valuations start to cool and then the share price reprices downwards to uh, reflect that. You know, I think, again, it's back to the old sort of the old golden rules of being diversified, investing across different assets, um, having some exposure to themes like AI, not not making it the, the big part of your portfolio. It's important to limit exposure and keep risk in check. We're now going to move on to China. So when we spoke about China back in January, uh, Richard, you know we mentioned that um, you know the market was cheap. You know a lot of bad news was priced in, and there's hope. There was hopes of a, you know potential rebound for its economy and potential better times for its stock market, given the loosening of its zero COVID policy. However, this has not played out year to date. I mean, there was a sharp rally for the Chinese stock market towards the end of last year, but it's not really done too much in 2023. Why, why do you think that is, Richard? What's what's going on there? Yeah, it's a strange one. It, it, as you say, end, end of last year, probably January, maybe February as well, it was looking as if the economic recovery was uh, playing to plan. What then happened, of course, is that um, there, there was some economic data coming through, which was starting to suggest that the recovery was fizzling out. And of course, if you look at some of the problems that China does have in the background, you've got high youth unemployment, you've got a fairly non-committal consumer You've got an ailing property sector, and that's quite apart from any geopolitical tensions. Um, some of their data that was coming through was leading investors to think, 
is the recovery um, just going to be uneven or is it over? Uh, and there have been a, a number of economic downgrades to the country. In May, for example, Chinese exports were down 7.5%. Chinese imports were down 4.5%. Um, and although there has been some kind of intervention by the Chinese authorities in terms of cutting rates, which, rates which affect um, both corporate loans and mortgages, it's clear at the moment that it's going to need something more of a push uh, to maintain uh, that particular recovery. To put it in perspective, of course, Chinese GDP growth would be disappointing to them at sort of 4%, and that's certainly the sort of figure that the UK would happily apply for at the moment. And bringing this back to investors, how they can invest in China. So in Interact Investors Super 60, we have Fidelity China Special Situations. I interviewed the fund manager um, earlier this year, that's Dale Nichols, as part of our Insider Interview series, which you can check out on our YouTube channel. And I asked Dale about, you know, how risky is it having exposure to China? And um, he, he, he said, you have to be honest, China's a volatile market. It tends to be fairly driven by headlines, whether it's about economic growth or geopolitics. It tends to be in the headlines and the market is volatile as a result and sentiment can swing significantly. And I thought it was quite refreshing that he gave that answer. And it's just, you know, it's an important point really to bear in mind that if you're having exposure to a single country such as China that's, um, you know, based out in the emerging market regions, it is important to remember it's, a, it's an adventurous investment and therefore it should be a satellite holding rather than a core holding. While China's stock market has not taken off in 2023, some investors have um, benefited from China's reopening by having exposure to Europe. There's various luxury goods companies located on the continent that have seen their share prices soar in the first half of this year. As the reopening of China, it boosted sales for um, those luxury goods companies in Europe. So among the winners have been LVMH, which is made up of um, fashion brand Louis Vuitton and drinks companies Moe and Hennessy. And LVMH, earlier this year, it became Europe's largest publicly traded company. And, you know, as well as um, benefiting from the reopening of uh, China's economy, these stocks also benefited from the resilience of spending power amongst um, wealthy consumers against the rise in the cost of living. And also, it wasn't the only driver of European markets doing particularly well over recent months. After all, you know, the shares have been cheap for quite a long time and investor sentiment has been low. And at the start of the year, it was interesting because no one really was predicting the resurgence of Europe's stock market, but it has had a pretty good first six months to the year. Another thing that no one predicted was a couple of US banks will fall into difficulty, as well as European lender Credit Suisse. So Richard, what's been going on here with the banking sector and is this a potential repeat of the 2008 banking crisis all over again? I think it's far from uh, a potential repeat of the great financial crisis. Central banks, where necessary, were very uh, quick to jump in and, and help out. The other thing to bear in mind in terms of the states is this tended to revolve around the, the Silicon Valley banks, the sort of the smaller lenders. We're not talking about JP Morgan. We're not talking about Goldman's. We're talking about the, the raft in the middle. We, we often forget that in the UK, we've probably got five or six banks. In the US, they've got thousands of different brands on every street corner. Um, so in that respect, it was, it was reasonably well contained. 
Uh, in terms of Credit Suisse moving rather closer to home, I think it's also been recognised that that was uh, a company which had been in trouble for probably over a decade. Uh, and this this particular issue where there was a lot of investors looking around Europe to see if the US experience could translate to the UK were with this particular uh, example of Credit Suisse sorely disappointed. Again, as a result of the great financial crisis, UK banks, for example, um, had what you what you, we now call the CET1 ratio or capital, capital cushion, if you will, raised so far that UK banks are currently awash with capital, which is why we've seen a return to dividends and share buybacks, for example. Um, and, and these are much more resilient businesses than they were in the sort of 2008, 2009 period. Inevitably, you're going to get those weeks of volatility just when investors can stand back and be satisfied that there's nothing systemic going on here. Uh, and I hope that we have now passed the peak of volatility and, and concern in terms of the banking sector. Well, back at the end of April, we had a full manager that specifically focuses on financials. He has a lot of exposure to banks on the podcast to unpick what was going on at the time. So that was Nick Berins, who's full manager of the Polar Capital Global Financials Investment Trust. And in a similar ilk to what you've been saying, Richard, he called the, the turmoil a mini banking crisis rather than the makings of a systemic banking crisis. And the point that he made was that he said, ultimately, we know the reasons why those US banks were seen as susceptible. But the weakness with all of them was that they had a high percentage of their depositors uninsured. And he made the point that this was much higher than their competitors and peers and as a result of that, you know, they were susceptible to that loss of confidence. So, you know, he summed up by saying, so in that sense, it is not a systemic banking crisis. And in conversations I've had with other fund managers that, you know, don't exclusively just focus on financial stocks, there's been, there has been some people who use that turmoil back in April to pick up um, some potential lower, well, the, pick up the, the lower share prices that, uh, that materialise because of the uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, w when you get this kind of thing spreading like wildfire, whether it's justified or not, and it turns out so far that it wasn't, what tends to happen, of course, in terms of uh, blue chips or, or indices as a whole, is you get a broad brush write down. And as Warren Buffett would say, when the tide goes out, you can see who's wearing trunks. And fortunately, uh, mo most of the companies um, had simply been hit by that um, uncertain sentiment without anything fund fundamentally wrong with their businesses, which, as you say, in hindsight, was a good, good opportunity to do a bit of bargain hunting. And of course, it's a sector that you know naturally benefits from interest rates going up. So, um, you know, it's a potentially attractive time to look at it, but I don't think the share prices have actually really moved an awful lot. No, because it's something of a double-edged sword. You're absolutely right in terms of rising interest rates being traditionally good for banks. By the same token, the general economic backdrop in the UK, which hasn't yet come to pass, but always seems to be, to be nearby, is the possibility uh, of a real cost of living crisis and the possibility, therefore, of, of more bad debts, more defaults on loans. Uh, and indeed, that was a, another one of the things that we discussed at the start of the year, whether we would start to see uh, a return to loan loss provisions by the banks. And in the last quarter, we did. Whereas uh, over the last year or so, they, they had been releasing uh, provisions which they didn't any longer need, which immediately boosted their results. Uh, more recently, the banks have started, not in the same sort of 
to the same level they did during the pandemic. But nonetheless, they have started to put some capital aside just in case. Let's see where things are at at the end of the year. Until then, my thanks to Richard and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like us to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interact Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. See you next week.